statement that I'm reading before prayer, a short statement, is from uh, the 1901 uh, testimony to the General Conference. Truth is not truth to those who do not practice it. Truth is only truth to you when you live it in the daily life, showing the world what those people must be who are at last saved. I think we should observe the fact that we may uh, profess uh, the truth, we may, be may believe it to start with, and then may profess it, and we may teach it, and work for it, but if we don't live it, if we don't practice it, it isn't truth to us. Well, this, as I mentioned, is the sum of it all. If if we get a hold of this and translate it into uh, practice in our lives, this principle uh, controls us, then we'll make it to the end. No question about that. So try to uh, get a hold of this fact and uh, hold fast to it. The truth is not truth to those who do not practice it. The uh, Spirit of Prophecy says, Ministry Healing, I think it's one page 122, that grace is in the Word. God's grace is in His Word, in His promises, in His truth. So you can see now that if we're going to if we're going to live the truth, then it must be by virtue of the grace that is in the truth. You can see that. Uh, if we profess the truth, but the truth is is not a living article to us, then the grace does not avail to enable us to keep the truth. You see that? So you have truth and truth. You have truth uh, in which God has impregnated grace. But you can get that truth without getting the grace. Well, the, the difference is that if the Holy Spirit accompanies the truth to the heart, then the grace that's impregnated in the truth will become part of you. The Holy Spirit opens it up, for the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and he controls the truth and controls grace. But if the Holy Spirit is not with you, and you study the truth, you can study it from now until doomsday, and that will never open up. The grace will never open up in your life. Last week we heard a lot about a bomb being planted in a casino. Where was it? In uh, Reno, Nevada, where the casino is. And this bomb was planted there, and they knew it was there. They found the bomb. They knew it was there, but although that bomb had uh, highly destructive energy in it, it, it couldn't do anything until that energy was released, right? And so that bomb just lay there for several days or several hours. I don't know just how long it was. And then the, uh, a bomb squad uh, were going to attempt to detonate it, uh, try to get it out and detonate it. They were going to have a a helicopter fly in and hook onto it and lift it out. Well, before that, the bomb went off. I don't know what they did to make the bomb go off, but it did $3 million worth of damage in the casino. Everybody was out. And now the one who planted the bomb wanted $3 million, and it did $3 million worth of damage. So better they'd given him the $3 million, except that they don't believe in extortion and, and so on. But uh, now they've got the casino to do over. That doesn't hurt my feelings at all. That make me sad. But nevertheless, from their standpoint, they would have been better off. Look at all the trade they're going to lose. They're going to lose maybe millions of dollars in in uh, 
traffic and, and trade. The point is not that. The point is this, that, and it's obvious, that the um, power that was built into that bomb, which was tremendous, uh, one FBI man said that he had never seen anything like it as a homemade bomb. It was very sophisticated. And you can see how it was potentiated to blow to smithereens that casino. And uh, that power could never have been released if it had not been timed to go off. Well, now that's the way God has made truth. Truth is timed to go off in our lives. And the time is when the Holy Spirit uh, is able to release the energy that's in the truth. Now, this is why the, the, the world knows so much truth and yet benefits so little by it. The Christian world I'm talking about, you see? Millions know truth, but don't benefit by it, don't advantage by it very much because the Holy Spirit is not uh, releasing the power of the truth of their lives, and that's great. I want to read to you from uh, Romans, the fifth chapter, from the 20th verse. You know, I think I'm going to read to you from from the 17th verse. Well, I'll change my mind again. I'm going to read the 20th verse. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now the offense is the original sin. And that original sin has been cumulative through the centuries. It has been perpetuated and has been cumulative. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now what do you get out of this? Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You know, sin is a is a terrible power. Sin is controls the world. That's how much power it has. Sin has uh, wreaked havoc through the centuries, torn mankind apart, divided the races, caused all the racial um, hatreds and troubles that exist, caused all the bloodshed that exists, caused all the deterioration of mankind and nature that exists. Sin is a terrible power for destruction, see? Now it says, where sin abounded, what's that word abounded mean? Where it was just a, uh, a small amount of it? No, where sin, where sin was so prevalent that it just abounded everywhere. Just like weeds, you look outside during the spring season, in fact, even now, and weeds abound everywhere you see weeds and more weeds. And you know how it is to try to get rid of the weeds. Now, the Lord says that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In other words, that where this vast power of sin existed, or against this vast power of sin, another power came into the world that did much more abound than, than the power of sin. And that's the power of grace in truth, you see. Now, some people think that the phenomenon of grace lies outside of anything else. It has no container. The grace is simply unmerited favor. Well, that's right. It is unmerited favor. It's favor we don't merit. But that, that doesn't do justice to the nature of grace to say that it's simply unmerited favor. What does that amount to, unmerited favor? Well, it's just God favors us. But how does God favor us? God favors us with this power, this power to be what uh, God requires us to be before he can save us. So, although it's favor and it's unmerited, there's nothing we can do to merit it, 
it has it has power in it, just like the light up there. The light in itself, uh, that is the bulb and the uh, the rest of the apparatus, it doesn't give you light until you uh, turn the switch over there, snap the switch. Then a power comes in that lights up that whole apparatus, and that's grace. That's uh, that's um, analogous to grace. Grace comes into our lives, and it does something. If grace doesn't come into our lives, it doesn't do anything. It can't do anything. We continue on as we were. Now, we all come in, came into this world the same way as uh, creatures that were born in sin, inherited sin, and have grown up in sin. That power has possessed us. That power dominates us. That power is uh, replete in our lives. That power uh, circulates through our uh, veins, it's, it's in our cells, it's uh, permeated our brain cells and our whole being. Power of sin controls us through habits till we're helpless, we're lost, we're unsaved, there's no hope for us. That's the way we are until uh, grace comes into our lives. And when grace comes into our lives, then where this power of sin abounds, what happens? Grace doth much more abound. Well, then why do we continue the way we are? Why does the world continue the way it is? I'm speaking of the Christian world. It shows one thing, that there's truth in two forms. Truth that is impregnated with grace and that uh, we take into our minds, into our lives, but we never release the power that's in it. And then truth, that it, the same truth, we take into our lives, the Holy Spirit releases the power that's in it. It's like a time, it's like a time capsule. To use another illustration, I have vitamin C that uh, comes in time capsules. And you take uh, one and it releases vitamin C all through the night, if you take it at night, or all through the day, if you take it during the day, over a period of time. See? What, uh, what happens? Well, it's built that way. Uh, this is the way it's manufactured, not to be released all at one time. Well, not so with the Holy Spirit. If we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit will release all the power of truth in our lives, all the truth that is there. Now, the truth we don't have, of course, the Holy Spirit cannot uh, use to help us at that moment. But all the truth that we know intellectually, all the truth and the doctrine that we have accepted, the Holy Spirit can make efficacious and uh, powerful, redemptive in our lives if we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit. But if we aren't surrendered to the Holy Spirit, then we profess the truth, or we, we know the truth, that is, we think we know the truth, we study the truth, we accept it as truth, we profess it, we may teach it, we may uh, work with it, and so on, but it doesn't do us any good. See? Now, this is the problem with among Christians, among us all, is that truth has not released, or the spirit of truth has not released the power of truth in our lives. You all recognize this fact? Has not recognized, or has not released the power of truth in our lives. Now, you read of, of um, those whom God was able to use or has been able to use in the past in a great way, in a marked manner. Well, he was able through 
the release of grace and the truth uh, to accomplish great things through them. And what God was able to do through them, he's able to do through us. If we follow the same course they followed. Now, take Peter. Peter presents two Peters, two pictures. One, uh, before he was completely converted. <clears throat> he knew the truth. He was acquainted with the truth personally. He walked with the truth in person. You realize that? He walked with the truth. He lived with the truth. He ate with the truth. He slept with the truth. He looked into the face of the truth. He listened to the truth, personified in Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you get the truth, you're in the way to life. But Peter didn't experience that. Peter turned out to be a, a gainsayer, a liar, a coward. He thought he wasn't any of that. The truth wasn't doing him much good. The power of the truth had not been released in his life. You see, When he came up to the crucial test, he didn't have it, as we say. He just didn't have it. So he collapsed. Now, afterwards was a different Peter, altogether a different Peter. The power in truth had been ignited. The Holy Spirit had supplied the spark, and the power had burst loose in him, exploded, as it were, and made Peter a mighty Peter, in contrast to the uh, powerless Peter he had been. The difference? The difference was that the truth that he professed in the beginning had not been ignited. The truth that he professed in the end had been ignited. The grace that was in the truth had not been released in the beginning. It had been released afterward. That's the difference. Now, many of us come into the church via the root of conversion, evangelism, reading for ourselves. Um, it is assumed that most who read their, their, their way into the truth um, are converted, that the Holy Spirit's been able to release the power of grace in their lives to the point where uh, they have forsaken the world, uh, supposedly, and uh, that they have um, they, they have forsaken some of their habits, if not all of them. Uh, they've had a change of heart, a, uh, along with a change of mind, and they're different persons. Well, that should be the truth, and I think is the truth with very many. But then there are others who are born into the church, born into the faith. Now, they have to have an experience within the church, within the family. And if the family is not what it ought to be, it doesn't supply all the spiritual nourishment, nutrition that they need to bring them uh, to the place where the Lord can do much for them, until the Holy Spirit can release the truth or the power of the truth in their lives. If they have come in through other sources, that is, if they have attended school, uh, Adventist schools, and um, gone to some evangelistic meetings, and so on, well, they can take hold of the truth intellectually. They can affirm that they believe the truth. But the truth is not the truth to them if it is not practiced, as I read here in the prayer of thought. The truth is not truth until it's lived. And so... Uh, they, have an, they have the truth in name. They're nominal truth believers, just as all of us can be if we don't live the truth. But it's very difficult for them, for they have not had the experience that those who have, have been brought in by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of truth, have had to sustain them. And so 
they don't stand on vantage ground. Now this, this is the picture of thousands upon thousands of Adventist young people, not only young people, but some older ones too. But the great majority of young people in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and I'm only talking in the main about the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it's true about all churches, and maybe more true, I don't know, because I don't belong to them. But I know on principle that it is true. And this is the, the problem with the Adventist young people. Just think of it now. A vast army of young people. And you know what Sister White says about them? What they could be? What's that statement say? What, this, what the Lord can make of this army? Hmm? Rightly, Rightly what? Furnished. Rightly furnished. That's it, but they're not yet. You see, so there is this vast potential army. And they, they have been, um, uh, they registered maybe. They haven't been drafted yet. But maybe they registered so far, but haven't been drafted. The reason they haven't been drafted is that God doesn't draft. God takes only volunteers. And uh, they, they simply haven't entered the service of the Lord yet. Now they're in crucial danger, all of them. One after another, they fall away one way or another because the power of, of truth, grace, in their lives has not broken loose yet and uh, done its work, you see. Now another statement here. The same uh, uh, chapter in the next verse. Well, I'll reread verse 20. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness. Well, that's the contrast. Um, sin, the power of sin, reigns unto death with every one of us, but the power of grace will reign unto righteousness, can save the soul from death. Now the, the first and second verses. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a verse that thousands love to quote. You don't need to worry. We have peace with the Lord. We've accepted the Lord. That's all we have to worry about. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Oh, yes, when we accept Christ, we do have peace if we have access into this grace. But keep in mind this grace is not something that is nebulous, that's amorphous, has no nothing to it at all. This grace is power. This grace is the power of, of God uh, impregnated in the truth, and the Holy Spirit alone can release it in our lives. So who should we be wooing? The Holy Spirit. And this ought to be our constant concern, is to uh, make sure that uh, we are doing our utmost to put ourselves in the hands of the Holy Spirit, morning, noon, and night. And if we aren't, then we know that the Holy Spirit is not uh, trafficking in our lives at all. It's another spirit that's trafficking in our lives. For the Holy Spirit will only come where he's invited to come in faith. He'll only stay as long as we treat him that way. Now, I'll read to you from Second Corinthians, the ninth chapter, the... Uh, of the eighth verse. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Now what did I read over here in uh, Romans the fifth chapter in the twentieth verse? But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Then I read in the second verse that we have access by faith into this grace. Now this tells us the mechanics, how we're going to have access into this grace 
that abounds more than the power of sin abounds. See? Now this tells us how. It says that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So, folks, if we're going to abound to every good work, there's only one uh, solution. Only one way is possible, is that we abound in grace. See? And abound in grace means we must abound in truth. Not truth in the head, but truth in the heart. And until truth is brought into the inner sanctuary, it doesn't do us any good. Just kept in, in books, kept in our head, doesn't help us any. Well, God's going to make this grace abound. Now, what do you think is going to, um, is going to, going to uh, secure God's uh, uh, will in this matter? He's going, to, um, he's going to bring God to the place where he's going to do this for us. What's going to do it? God is able, we know God is able, to make grace abound toward you, and that we may abound in all good work. What's going to bring God to the place where he's going to make this grace abound? In other words, where God is going to, uh, through the Holy Spirit, release the, the power of grace and truth in our lives. What's going to bring God to the place? To surrender. Right. To surrender. That's it. Now, what does surrender mean? When, when a, a general of an army surrenders to uh, the conquering general, you know what he does? He takes off his sword, he hands over his gun, his sidearm, he takes off something else. I don't know just what they take off. But he takes off his sword and he, he hands over his gun. In other words, now he's powerless, you see this? He's no longer anything. He surrendered all that he is to the other one. The, the warfare is at an end. The battle's over. He's lost. Now this is what surrender means. That we hand over the Lord everything that we think we are. Everything that we have been aiming toward. That is so far as the world may be concerned. Not so far as God's concerned. That we just turn ourselves over to God completely. Let God turn us inside out. And then when we make that surrender, then the Holy Spirit comes into the vacuum. But the Holy Spirit can't come in so long as we keep ourselves there. As long as we keep our appetites, our habits, our old ways, old interests, and so on. No room to come in. Well, this is why the, the power of truth is never released and why the bomb never goes off in us. You see? That is, if it, if it doesn't go off, this is the reason. Um, well, I'll read one more verse here in, in 2 Corinthians. It's, uh, let's see. Well, I don't find it, but he says, My grace, well, this says the same thing, that ye always having all sufficiency. But this other scripture says, I thought it was here, that my grace is sufficient. Philippians Philippians, okay. Philippians 4? Well, both say the same thing, you see, that my grace is sufficient, and my grace will beget all sufficiency in you. Now, having a, a little better conception, I hope, of the uh, of the mechanics of, of uh, grace in our lives, that grace is not something ephemeral, something without uh, substance, something that's just a um, concept. But grace is, a, is the greatest power in all the universe. It's the power of God unto salvation. And how God uh, works this power into us, how he impregnates grace into truth, and how we get truth through our eyes and our ears, through our senses, 
And thus, if we're allowing the enemy to preoccupy the ground of our eyes and our ears and our senses, how can truth and grace come in? You see? So that's why it's so impo- all important to, uh, to have our senses dedicated to the Lord. That we, you, you've seen the monkeys that see no evil and speak no evil and hear no evil. Well, this is the way it has to be with God's people. That our eyes are covered up, our ears are shut, and our tongue is locked in our mouths so that uh, the avenues of the soul are not dedicated to the enemy's traffic, but uh, contrariwise are dedicated to the Holy Spirit's traffic. So then the Holy Spirit can come in and traffic in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what does he bring? Well, what does Revelation 3 teach us? Well, the true witness comes with gold. What else? White, White raiment. What else? I salve. Now, this includes all uh, the redemptive uh, um, riches. Gold tried in the fire, white raiment to cover up our nakedness, and I salve to open our eyes. And this is what he comes with. See, But he can't come with this if the enemy is trafficking in our lives, if our senses are dedicated to him, if we're watching television all the time, listening to radio all the time, reading all these these uh, magazines that come, papers and so on, going here and there, doing this and that, eating the way we want to eat, anything and everything, all the time. God can't do anything with us. You see? Now, we ought to be beyond all of that. So there ought to be some, there, there must be some more subtle things than that that are causing us the trouble. They're keeping the Holy Spirit from releasing this time bomb in the truth. That's what it really is. Truth is a time bomb. That's why it says that uh, uh, some truths uh, come to their time and are released. You see, the truth for the time. And now this is what God has given to us. Truth came on time and uh, right on time, right according to the prophetic clock it came. And the Lord now wants us to be released because he's got a world that he has to do something about. So what we need now is to find what it is that's, uh, keeping uh, the truth from going off in our lives the way it ought to, and really releasing power, depths of power, heights of power, breadths of power in our lives, more than we have seen. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord hadn't been able to accomplish anything. That's not true. Uh, the, and there's no cause for, uh, for um, deep uh, uh, grief that we ha- have not benefited at all by truth. Well, we have, but it's a relative thing. The Lord is trying to get us to a place where he can release the energy that it takes to accomplish the job that needs to be done. This is Testimonies of Ministers, page 508. I've read this statement to you before. Divine grace is needed at the beginning. Divine grace at every step of advance. And divine grace alone can complete the work. You see that? So, when, when we first heard the truth and we accepted the truth, we surrendered to the truth, then that was the beginning. Grace was released in our lives and enabled us to take the first step. But the first step isn't going all the way. So we need grace all along the way. Constantly more grace being released in our lives. Now if you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you a, uh, some pills he says, now you go home, you take every one of these pills. I've, I've measured them out just enough. And you take them 
just as often as I prescribe, uh, and they're going to do this work. They're going to accomplish what uh, needs to be done. And you come home and you take one pill, and then maybe you will take two. You say, that hasn't done any good. So you toss the pills aside and don't take any more. You say the doctor didn't know anything. Well, the doctors had a lot of experience, so they probably knew that there was a good chance that that's what we would do. Anyway, it didn't help us any if that's what we did, whether you believe in pills or not. If you go to the doctor, do what the doctor tells you to do. If you don't believe in the doctor, stay away from the doctor and save your money. You'll probably be better off, or oftentimes as well off. I want to read to you now from a statement here, not very long, page and a half, on grace. Along with truth, the disciples beheld the fullness of the grace of God manifest in the Word made flesh. This grace was not a passive energy. What does it say? Grace was not a, not a passive energy. You see? Now, this is the first time I have come upon a statement like this. This is what I've been uh, trying to uh, make clear to Davidians for 35 years. 40 years. The grace is not a passive energy. Grace is an active, positive, powerful energy. And all the more shame to all that we haven't gotten farther. But if it were a passive energy, then well, maybe God would say, well, it's passive, it, it uh, is not very powerful, and therefore it's going to be an eternally tedious and slow process. But that's not so. Grace is a supreme power. This grace was not a passive energy, but rather active. Paul declared, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Uh, you, see, you see the uh, antithesis here? Look at them again now. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust. That's on the one hand. Ungodliness and worldly lust. And on the other hand, live soberly, righteously, and godly. Just the opposite, you see. So grace is to bring man out of what he naturally was born into, what was impregnated in him biologically, and bring him into a state that's not natural to him, but through power that's impregnated in truth, spiritually, you see. That's what it's to do. This is what grace is to accomplish. Now he's quoting from, from um, Great Controversy 506. No, no, it's not Great Controversy. It's another statement. For the grace of God... Oh, I read this. This is Paul's statement. God's grace is not something by which he winks at man's transgression. Now, this is the Protestant concept, you see, that you just say, well, uh, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm saved by grace. So what does that mean? That means that what does God do? Well, you can go on smoking your cigarette. You can go on cheating people. You can go on doing a lot of things. Uh, now, we know two uh, Christians, that is, the profess to be Christians. We know them. We deal with them. And one belongs to one church. One belongs to another. Uh, one is, a, is almost a chain smoker. And the other is, uh, well, he, he carries his pack in his pocket. And you can always smell it on him. But he's a good Baptist and the other's a good Catholic. Mm -hmm. Now these typify thousands upon thousands of, of nominal Christians. I went to a Methodist church with Brother Knapp one time in Texas, I believe it was, or else in New Mexico. And uh, they, some friends of his had invited him to take a class there. So I went and sat in his class. And of course, what he was giving them 
was really strong meat. Uh, I don't know whether they were able to assimilate it all, but he wasn't, he wasn't pouring it on uh, their plate too heavily, but he was giving them some strong meat. Well, when church was all over, out they came, and I stood to the side observing. They were lighting up their cigarettes and their pipes and their cigars right fast. And I don't doubt, but when they got home, they pulled out their bottles and poured some beer or some wine or something else. You see. All this goes. And uh, they just went to church. And that was about all. Probably went to work afterwards. What kind of grace is that? That's cheap grace. That's what it is. Very cheap grace. You see. Doesn't do anybody any good. God's grace is not something by which he winks at man's transgression. But his grace teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and lust which war against the soul. This is what grace teaches us. That this may be accomplished in us, we must accept the promises of the powerful energies heaven has provided. Powerful energies which heaven has provided. Now, what are these energies in? If they're not in grace, they're not in anything. So what, what ought we to be thinking about constantly? From the beginning, right straight through to the end. Grace in the covenant. This is the all-important thing because it's the all-powerful, all-powerful concern. That this may be accomplished in us, we must accept the promises of the powerful energy heaven has provided, whereby we can escape the corruption that is in the world through love. The grace which Christ implants in the soul through the Holy Spirit does something specific for the recipient. He implants it in our soul through the Holy Spirit, right? Now, how does he do it through the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit come tap us on the head like the old brother uh, in Escondido, California said, and, and he can feel it running down his spine, tingling his spine. No, in truth, you see. So how are you ever going to get the power of the Holy Spirit, grace, if you don't study, if you don't study, if you don't have the truth? If you have the truth and you don't do anything with it, it's only in your head. Then that you're just as bad off. Study. To show yourselves approved, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the person who won't study, not much hope for it, if any. The grace, uh, this is quoting now from Great Controversy, it is the grace that Christ implants in the soul which creates in man enmity against faith. Now that's what we need. You see, enmity. You say, well, we don't want to be filled with enmity. We don't want to be filled with enmity toward Christ or toward one another or toward anything that's good. But we do want to be filled with enmity toward Satan and all that is bad, you see. Now, that's what's naturally in us, see, all that we've inherited. And so unless we get the power of grace in us to put enmity against that, we're always going to be friendly with that, friendly with, with the world's ideas. And if we're friendly with the world's ideas, then it's enmity against God. Lord tells me. It is the grace that Christ implants in the soul, and I add now, in the truth, you see, which creates in man enmity against Satan. Without this converting grace and renewing power, see, converting grace and what? Renewing power. You have to have both. You have to be turned around. You have to have the power to keep turned around. And then to go someplace, do something. Man would continue the captive of Satan a servant ever ready to do his bidding. That's the way it goes, you see. We'd have in us not the enmity toward Satan, but the enmity toward God. And we wouldn't want to turn around. The things of God would appear foolishness to us, you see. We wouldn't like them at all. That's why so few want to go this way. 
But the new principle in the soul, see what has it put in there in the soul? A new principle. But the new principle in the soul creates conflict with hitherto, which where 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 hitherto had been peace. People in the world have a degree of peace. They go on oblivious of of uh, really uh, what uh, is happening in them. Uh, they have troubles and they bemoan the troubles and wish they didn't have them, but they don't know anything to do about it. And so they just go on uh, more or less blissfully ignorant of the whole thing. They're in a sort of peace. It's a delusive peace. Uh, the new principle in the soul creates conflict where hitherto had been peace. So when this conflict comes into the life, you know what people say? Ever since I accepted the truth, ever since I became a Christian, ever since I became an Adventist, ever since I became a Davidian, I have only had trouble. Right? I've had trouble. This has happened and this has happened and that has happened. Physically and uh, otherwise, you see, that's the truth. They'll begin to have trouble, real trouble then. The devil will see to it that they do have trouble. That's his business, you see. But where sin abound and trouble abound, grace much more abound, and then what? And the Lord is going to use these troubles to, to set us up and make something out of it. If we don't have the troubles, we'll never amount to anything. The power which Christ imparts, oh, that means the bomb's going to go off in us, you see. It's going to release the power, the power of grace and the truth. The truth is really going to be ignited, going to, uh, is going to uh, be more than just a dormant thing in our lives. The power which Christ imparts enables man to resist the tyrant and usurper. He's usurped our lives. He's usurped uh, the throne in our souls. He put Christ off and put himself on. Oh, whoever is seen to abhor sin instead of loving it, whoever resists and conquers those passions that have held sway within, displays the operation of a principle holy from above. What does he display? Yeah, he puts it on display, folks, so that everyone can see it. That is a holy principle, different from the principles that have hitherto worked in him and made him what he was. Grace does have a negative aspect. It creates hatred of. Now, I've been reading not only what it, uh, what it does positively or negatively. Pardon me, I'm misstating myself. What it does positively, but now I'm reading what it does negatively. Grace is a power that enables you to surrender, keep you surrendered, and uh, enables God to do all these affirmative things in your life. But now, it's a negative force, too. It creates hatred of, an abhorrence for, and an enmity against sin. That's what it does. Now, unless it does this first, it can't do the other uh, next. It has, to, it has to create this enmity, this hatred, this dislike, this distaste, this uh, uh, wanting to be freed from. And then when the Lord has been able to accomplish this in our lives, then he can accomplish the rest easily enough. This enmity is supernatural. You see this now? It is not natural at all. So there's no use of thinking that, well, one day it'll come. If I just grow up a little bit more, you see, it'll come. It won't ever come unless the Lord is able to put this enmity in our hearts. The enmity is supernatural, holy of divine origin. In this it reflects the very nature of Jesus. Of him it is written, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So if we have hate, if we have Christ in us, what are we going to hate? Iniquity. And how are we going to get Christ in us? Only in the truth. He is the truth, you see. The Holy Spirit in our lives, opening up the power of truth in our lives, will bring about this enmity. When Christ became an inhabitant of this earth, this enmity reached its highest degree of development. This is why 
the devil hated him so and why people hated him and why they did what they did to him. If he hadn't had this enmity developed in him to the point he had, he would not have been crucified. Uh, never before had there been, this is uh, a statement now from the Spirit of Prophecy, never before had there been a being upon the earth who hated sin with so perfect a hatred as did Christ. He had seen its deceiving, infatuating power upon the holy angels. Just think of how he must felt, how God and he must have felt as I saw this thing happening in heaven. We can't begin to uh, comprehend it. We can't feel it. We can't appreciate it. He had seen his deceiving, infatuating power upon the holy angels, and all his powers were enlisted against it. Genuine grace was the means, now this, that, that's the end of the quotation. Genuine grace was the means of God's direct intervention in the fall of man to offset the advantages obtained by the enemy. Now, try to think into this. If it hadn't been now for uh, bringing in this extraneous element, into the equation, the human equation down here, grace, you see. If God hadn't injected it into the equation, man would have been hopeless. And not only that, but listen to what he says here. I've never thought of this before. Had God not intervened, man would have formed a firm alliance with Satan against heaven. So God would have had to block man out, or just sweep him off the earth, because he was going to form an alliance, you see, with enemies with Satan against God. Not only, not only was his soul lost, but this other would have followed. In the statement, quote, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, God pledged himself to introduce into the hearts of, of, a, of human beings a new principle. Now he pledged himself right then to introduce a new principle, to bring in this extraneous power, this element, a hatred of sin. Now that only comes by enmity towards sin. A hatred of sin, of deception, or pretense, of everything that bears the marks of Satan's guile. That's what God promised Eve, and that could only be realized by virtue of the Holy Spirit coming in and creating this enmity in her life and in Adam's life. We hear much today about how easy it is to be a Christian. Just believe in the grace of God will do all that needs to be done. This is it. This is the chorus that you hear. But the implantation, now several words are used, impregnation, implantation, what was this other word I used? Introduced, the introduction. Many different words can be used to show how God has put this grace in. Now the implantation of the true grace of God in the soul, hatred of sin, is the beginning of a lifelong struggle marked by tedious battles and severe, bitter contest. This is what is going to ensue. So anyone says, well, if you're in your right mind, you're not going to walk into that. But if you're in the right mind, you're going to also see what you're going to walk into if you don't walk into this. What are you going to walk into? This is going to grow less and less, and, and uh, the, the growth of, of Christ in you is going to grow more and more. But if you don't walk into this, what are you going to walk into? What's the other picture? You're going to walk into an inferno. You're going to walk into perdition. This is not comparable to that. Now, this is from Faith I Live by 135. The evil tendencies of mankind are hard to overcome. Can't do it ourselves. Battles are tedious. You hear? Battles are tedious. Just what he's said above. He's written in the light of this statement, you see. The battles are tedious. Every soul in the strife knows how severe, how bitter 
are these contests. Now, those who haven't taken up their cross and followed the Lord, they don't know anything about this. They may have seen their parents struggling or their friends struggling or the church members struggling, but they themselves don't know anything about it personally. So they may question about it. Everything about growth in grace is difficult. Everything about growth in grace is difficult because the standard and maxims of the world are constantly interposed between the soul and God's holy standard. The Lord would have us elevated, ennobled, purified by carrying out the principles underlying his great moral standard, which will test every character in the great day of final reckoning. Right now, I said one statement. There's really two statements here in volume five. This is page 500. Those who embrace the truth of heavenly origin should be refined, ennobled, sanctified through it. Now, the reason that it doesn't do this work is, as we have just gone over, is that the power of grace in the truth is never released, you see. So truth just lies there. It's like a seed planted out here that didn't have any virtue in it. That seed just lies there and rots. Now, this happens with a lot of seeds. There's no virtue in the seed. The principle is dead. You see? That's the way it is with truth. The principle of grace is lying there dormant, never released. It will, it, it will require much painstaking effort to reach God's standard of true manhood. That's just what that statement said. What will it require? Much painstaking effort to require God's standard of true manhood. Well, what about with the women? Does this pertain to the man? There's womanhood here, too. The, the irregular stones hewed from the quarry must be chiseled. Their rough sides must be polished. This is an age famous for surface work, for easy methods, for boasted holiness aside from the standard of character that God has erected. All short cuts, all cut-off tracks, all teaching which fails to exalt the law of God as a standard of religious character is furious. Perfection of character is a lifelong work, unattainable by those who are not willing to strive for it in God's appointed way by slow and toilsome steps. We cannot afford to make any mistake in this matter, but we want day by day to be growing up into Christ, our living head. Now this one on page 332. Self-examination must be thorough that there be no danger of self-deception. Now, it all comes back down to this. That we don't look into ourselves to see whether grace is at work or not. Enough, you see. This work must be thorough, that there be no danger of self-deception. A little catechizing of self on special occasions is not sufficient. Daily examine the foundation of your hope and see whether you are indeed in the love of Christ. Deal truly with your own heart for you cannot afford to run any risk here. Count the cost of being a wholehearted Christian, and then gird on the armor. Study the pattern, look to Jesus, and be like him. Your peace of mind, your hope of eternal salvation, depends on faithfulness in this work. As Christians, now try to get this clearly, as Christians, we are less thorough in self-examination than in anything else. It is no wonder, then, that we make such slow advancement in understanding self. Why do we make such slow advancement in understanding self? 
self-examination. Because of this uh, failure to carry on the work of self-examination. To see, to see what's lurking within that grace has not yet expelled. Grace in the covenant. Grace at the beginning. Grace all along the way. And grace at the end. This is the work of sanctification. You have any word before we close? Wherein resides the power of grace? In the truth. Study 122 of ministry healing. In the truth. So then how are we going to get grace in our lives? By getting the truth. Well, what if we just study and put the truth in our heads, in our memories even, so that we can quote it, but there it is. What do we need? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to ignite the grace in our lives. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. You can find us online at www.bashanhill.org and you can call us at 417-835-2162.